Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Profitability Podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Pinar. Many artisans start their journey by doing the actual work and then move on towards managing others to do that work over time. Work on your business and not in your business, they say. Whilst this is a very prevalent journey for many, I wonder how natural or desired it is. Every week on this podcast, I have a conversation with a fascinating guest, whether they're an entrepreneur, artist, musician, author, poet, or artisan, to learn more about how they live a life that is uniquely profitable. My guest today is Andrew Wilkinson, founder of MetaLab Design, where they've been working with clients like Walmart, Slack, and Uber for over 14 years, as well as being co-founder of Tiny Capital, where they've been acquiring incredible online businesses like Dribble and Goldboss. What has been most fascinating following Andrew's journey since he and I first met about 10 years ago is seeing him evolve from being a designer to being an investor. He ever makes it clear that he still evaluates most things in life and business through that same lens of design. Andrew tells the story of how he started MetaLab back in the day because he absolutely had to, and how he pretended to be a whole agency to avoid being that dork in the basement. Andrew and I discussed how he now views himself as the router of opportunities, how he designs the machine instead of being part of the machine, and how he optimizes his life to be able to say no to anything. Overall, the concept of evolution was prevalent in our conversation, both for how Andrew thinks about his business and his work, along with how that plays out in his home life and his involvement in his society. Whatever also struck me were the things that have stayed the same for Andrew, his lens of design, and how Andrew, for example, has built MetaLab over the last 14 years to have real longevity. Let's jump into this conversation with Andrew Wilkinson. Hey, Andrew, uh, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here, Addy. So, dude, I mean, I, you've done so many things, um, and especially since we last spoke as well, at least in, you know, in depth, right? So what I'm curious about, firstly, is walking into a party today, how does uh, Andrew Wilkinson introduce himself? Like, are there any labels you use for yourself? What does that kind of introduction look like? Oh, man. Well, it really, it really depends on my audience and what I think will be understandable. If I'm talking to people who are in the business world, I might say I'm an investor. But I think that can come across as kind of douchey if you say it to people who aren't in business. And so often I just say I'm a designer because that's what I started out with. I originally was a web and product designer and I just kind of got a little ahead of my skis and now do a ton of other stuff. That is really interesting because, I mean, well, I mean, you and I met all those years ago, I mean, if, if I'm counting probably 10, 11 years, right? And so I know, and I got to know you as a designer as well. How much do you actually still design? Like if you use the label, I'm assuming you would dabble in design somewhat at least though? I think it's more, I use design as a tool. I'm more giving feedback on design, right? So right now I'm working on a new website for Tiny and I'm not the person actually in Figma building it, but I'm going through in Webflow and tweaking colors and moving stuff around and I'm designing what, you know, I'm figuring out the content and that kind of stuff. So I'm always kind of thinking through that lens and a lot of the businesses that we invest in and buy, I often look through the lens of design on those as well. So what I'm looking for is a business that has a product that's so good that it's working and that we can make it better by 
layering in marketing and sales and all the other stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm thinking like a designer and I'm going, is this a, a really well-designed, thoughtful product that people want to buy? So pretty much everything still flows through that approach. That's really interesting, like hearing you explain it like that, because where my mind immediately goes is to think, what are those predominant lenses or perspectives that I take on things, whether it's business or other things? And the one thing that I went to was that my lens is probably like one of them is probably accounting, right? I mean, like just looking at raw numbers, like you know, having to make sense and using that as a lens to make a decision. So, and I think the interesting thing there is then if design is such a predominant lens for you, like, do you think like kind of an almost a nature versus nurture kind of question, do you think that that's something that you were kind of you're born with or was it, you know, literally design was a skill that you learned over time and kind of that just resonated so much that it still sticks with you years later. Well, it's interesting you mentioned accounting because accounting was something that I always thought was horrible and it was like learning math or something like I had no interest in it. And then it became incredibly valuable and interesting to me. But if someone came to me and they said, hey, you should buy my business on an accounting basis. So let's say that it made a million dollars a year and I was able to buy it for two million bucks. And so the numbers were amazing. But then when I went to their website and I looked at what they do, I thought they had a crappy product and their design was horrible. I would be way less likely to buy the business because I just take that so seriously. It's like, I'm a farmer baker. I would never want to buy a bakery that had horrible cinnamon buns, right? Even if it's really popular and has a big line out the door, I just have this weird thing about it. What was the second part of that question? Do you think that that kind of, because that comes across very strongly, right? Because what I'm hearing you say there is you can tick loads of boxes and then eventually your opinion about the design is almost going to supersede loads of that, right? So the original question was like, do you think that that's a, a nature versus nurture kind of thing that, you know, meaning was this just something that you were born with, right? Or got exposed to, or was it literally kind of, is that design as a skill and then kind of you learned that and that just became this predominant kind of lens or perspective in which you evaluate different things. Regarding that, I, I don't think design is something that you can learn that easily. Like I feel like design is taste and it's hard to develop taste. And growing up, my dad was an architect and my mom is, she was a homemaker, but she took everything really seriously. So like our house would always be very well organized and thought out. She really loved designing the house and renovating it and making sure the garden was just so. And then, you know, my parents, they're both very into design. And so if we had a lamp, it would be a well-designed lamp and a thoughtful lamp and they would think about it. And if my dad had pens because he was an architect, they would always be the best pens and the best ruler, et cetera. And so I think growing up, I was just constantly exposed to good design without realizing it. And then when I started going out in the world, I started realizing a lot of things weren't well thought out. And, you know, a lot of people weren't very thoughtful about the objects they chose to have in their homes or in their businesses. And that was kind of exciting to me because suddenly I had this superpower that I could apply to the world because I'd been exposed to that and had built up good taste almost inadvertently. Yeah. The thing that comes to mind there is the kind of the Buddhist notion of saying we only know light because we only know dark. It sounds like you're very exposed to what really good design kind of meant and that really kind of thoughtful approach to putting things together. And then kind of as soon as you start going out in the rest of the world where that high, high standard is not there, 
then you start to see that darkness, not darkness in the bad light, but that kind of contrast, right? So, totally. so talking about design, right? So the first business you founded, I think it was the first, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, at least I think the thing that many people would know you for is, is MetaLab design agency, right? I'd love to kind of, you know, for you to, to take us back to that moment that you kind of decided that this is the thing you're going to work on. Like, where were you? What were you thinking? And what was the original goal with MetaLab? Well, I had dropped out of school. I had mistakenly thought that I wanted to be a journalist and gone to university, went to journalism school. I lasted about three months and dropped out, moved back into my parents' basement and was really trying to figure out what to do. And in high school, I'd been really into building websites and was you know, a reasonably good designer. You knew how to use Photoshop, knew how to code in HTML and CSS. And so... My plan was actually to move to Silicon Valley. I wanted to go work for Apple or Google or something, but I was broke. And so to make some extra money to afford to move down, I started freelancing. And I realized that if I freelanced as me, some 19-year-old dork in his parents' basement versus pretended to be an agency, you know, I could probably win more work and just kind of legitimize myself and so I designed a site and the site made me look like a pretty big agency. And so I started reaching out to startups. And before I knew it, I had, you know, a ton of work. And, you know, I went on to win clients like Walmart and Facebook and Amazon and Google and all sorts of others. And then got to work on the front lines of startups. We worked with hundreds of startups to launch their products and had this incredible experience of getting to sit at the table with founders and watch them raise money, you know, fail, pivot, go public, et cetera. What was um, interesting enough, like which of those bigger clients do you think was that kind of, you know, escape velocity moment, right? Where kind of, you know, MetaLab is growing and going well, and then you take on this one client um, and that just changes the trajectory of the business. Well, I mean, financially it was Walmart. So one day we got an email in about, 2009, I think. And it was a VP at Walmart who said, you know, hey, I saw, I think I saw you guys on Dribble or something and would love to work with you. And our jaws dropped. We were this tiny little studio with tiny little clients who we thought no one knew about. And all of a sudden we had this multi-billion dollar client who was willing to pay us a massive retainer and wanted to book a bunch of our team. And so financially, that was our backbone. But the problem was that the work we were doing was not very sexy. It was kind of behind the scenes and, you know, not stuff we could publicly show. The big inflection point for us was probably Slack, which we designed, uh, you know, we branded, we did the first marketing site, we did the first app, we did the first design that still in many ways persists today. And we, you know, started with a blank slate. When Stuart showed us the original design, it was a white screen. So that was an incredible experience for our team to be able to go in and really build the DNA of a product and see it through and then watch it turn into a multi-billion dollar business and then go public. It was very, very cool for us. And it gave us a lot of exposure and a great calling card. Yeah. I mean, and that's insane as well, right? Because oftentimes with the software products and these companies, they generally have internal design teams, at least to design those first versions, right? So like even um, being in the game, having that kind of reputation to get an opportunity to pitch at the table and get a project like that. I mean, that, that's just maybe not unheard of, but it's not a story that gets told often. No, absolutely. It's um, 
I mean, we're very grateful. It's, you know, it's a, I always like to say we're a 15 year overnight success, right? We just kept shipping and shipping and shipping and getting better and better and better and hiring better people. And then one day, eight years in or whatever, people started taking notice. Yeah, I mean, and, and you touch on that in one of the notes that I had here, Andrew, was just around longevity, right? I mean, because Metalab is 15 odd years old today, and I think there aren't that many agencies that are still relevant and still as relevant as Metalab is in the kind of the greater spaces that you play today, right? And not for that long amount of time. Like, what do you think? And I think you alluded to some of them, you know, just there, but like, what are the key parts to making sure you can survive that long and stay relevant for you know for that long and, and beyond that right it's it's not just just survival here because obviously from the outside it seems like metalab is absolutely thriving well i think the thing that's worked with metalab i mean there's been two real things there's been the stuff internally that we've done and there's been the external factor the external factor is that you know software ate the world so we started in 2006 and at the time, there was really nobody that specialized in digital products. So we started at the right time. And over that time, it went from the just the internet startups to now every business in the world needs software. And so we've been very well positioned to ride that rising tide as it rises. And then on the flip side, it's really been, for us internally, it's been very tempting to break into other areas like trying to do strategy or content or you know growth or all these other things that our customers want from us potentially you know there's many agencies that do a bit of everything we've been very very disciplined about saying we do not do anything except for product we will not do your ppc growth we will not do your strategy we will not do you know your copywriting etc and over time we've you know supplemented small areas like that but i'd say that's the number one thing and then the other thing is just really sticking to our culture and our dna and being very very careful about hiring and slowly scaling out the team and continuing for it to be a place where you're not going to work with jerks where you can make your career get to work on a wide variety of interesting stuff and uh, really building that culture of excellence and continuing to do great work i'll be honest when i handed off the reins and started you know hiring ceos and moved out of the day-to-day i was very fearful that you know we were going to end up doing worse work but that hasn't been the case at all we've built an incredible executive team and they've been able to really up the game and do better work than when I was running the business. Yeah, and uh, one compliment that I can give you there, Andrew, is I, I recently spoke with you know someone on your team, and I believe they joined relatively recently, i.e. in the last year or so. And many of the things, many of the exact words that you just used to describe how it is to to work at MetaLab is what this you know, individual told me, right? So, and that's always a compliment, right? Because that's the, you know, in terms of can you, when you speak about culture and DNA, that's what we want our teams to do, right, is to be able to communicate those things both kind of internally, but also externally and kind of you know, either verbatim, right, or just through their actions. So it definitely sounds like you've nailed that culture and DNA. So I wonder, and I kind of you know, want to make a kind of you know, shift away from MetaLab here for a moment, but when we speak about MetaLab culture and DNA, um, and especially as you said, kind of when you hired an executive team, you know, and gave over those reins, that's an inflection point. But before that, that kind of culture and DNA, you were heavily involved in that. And I'm I'm wondering how much of 
Andrew Wilkinson, how much of your kind of, you know, whether you call it kind of personal values or kind of mantras or just characteristics shows up in the kind of culture and DNA that you installed in the foundations of MetaLab? Well, for me, it was interesting. I started my business really because I had to, like I, you know, it's the classic entrepreneur line of, well, I wouldn't be employable basically. So I had to create my own business, but also I had a very unconventional lifestyle. I was a total night owl and I would stay up until five in the morning every night and, you know, usually working. And so I didn't want to wake up in the morning. And so I realized that if I had a traditional workplace where I expected my employees to be in the office from nine to five in you know, a set place, I would fail, right? I wouldn't be able to be there. And so partly out of, born out of you know my own desire for autonomy, I decided that I would do something unconventional and let my entire team work remotely. You know, we had tools like Basecamp around this time where we could actually get by just using you know, project management tools and stuff and no set work hours. And I'm only going to measure people based on output. And then also, you know, learning the hard way going, I don't want to work with brilliant jerks. I don't want to work with assholes and difficult people. And so, you know, those are two simple things, but giving people a lot of autonomy and freedom and the ability to structure their day in the way that they want and not be in meetings 24 seven has now permeated the cultures of the businesses that I've started, as well as the businesses that we've acquired and the type of businesses that we think we're a culture match for. And it goes back to, you know, for me personally, I just want to wake up every day and not feel that I have to do anything that I don't want to do. And we really try and create an environment where employees have that same level of freedom, because I don't think it's fair that you know, only me and Chris get to experience that. So we do our best to try and give people a lot of autonomy and ensure that they work with people who are pleasant and enjoyable and challenging, you know, in intellectually, but not personally. Yeah. And, and I hope that uh, anyone that listens to you kind of describe that. And I hope that what they hear between the lines here is that as people that build things, as people that kind of create teams or have teams around them, you know, whether it's on a full-time basis or not, it is totally possible for us to kind of, you know, for one to be opinionated about how we want to work and be able to find sufficiently, you know, kind of or sufficient number of people that, you know, wants to join that journey and work in the same way and be successful, right? And that doesn't mean that some of these things are like the opposite of it is bad. It's just that kind of it is okay to not necessarily self-select, but to have like-minded people that want to work in a certain way, kind of cluster around certain ideas. I don't think that, you know, definitely in your story and in your explanation thereof, it does not seem to have hampered you. In fact, it sounds like that is one of the reasons why your various businesses have flourished over time. I think it's a huge competitive advantage culturally. And if you look at the tenure of people that work with us, we have employees who have been with us for 15 years, right? It's incredible. And I think a big reason for that is because when they look around at other places they could go, they don't see that same level of freedom and autonomy and culture available to them. So yeah, it's a testament to what we've been able to build. But I think one of the big things that people miss is they hear that and they go, okay, this is a lifestyle business. And I really disagree with the notion that you can either build a billion dollar business and you got to blow your brains out and have an office in Silicon Valley and sleep under your desk, 
or you can have an enjoyable day-to-day life and, you know, just not meet your potential. And we're here to really counter that narrative. I mean, we've been able to build a holding company with over 30 businesses. I think we have something like 600 employees, very profitable, very high revenue. And it's it's been fun to question that narrative because I even wondered that. I always went like, man, am I really not squeezing the lemon to the degree I should be? Am I not growing the business as much? Am I not building a culture that's aggressive enough? But I think we've been the exception to the rule. Yeah, I think results speak for themselves there. So just talking, I mean, you touched on the holding company, tiny capital here, right? Um, I wonder kind of how you describe if you just had to, if you used labels or any other kind of description, but if you had to kind of describe what your role was, what the work looked like kind of in those early days at MetaLab and how that kind of has completely changed or not changed, but suspected has changed to the kind of work you're doing as tiny, you know, at tiny capital now, um, how you see your role, what your responsibilities are. Like, can you just kind of, you know, connect those two in a way that kind of explains that, that journey and the evolution? Well, I've gone from a artisan craftsman building furniture by hand alone in my garage to building a massive woodworking shop with locations, you know, 30 locations all over the world with hundreds of people and expensive machines. That's the way I always think about it. And so a lot has changed. You know, when I first started, I used to spend a quarter of my day on the phone with clients, a quarter of my day running projects and overseeing our staff, and then another quarter of my day doing the work itself in Photoshop, staying up until five in the morning. And then I'd sleep for six to eight hours and then do it all over again. And the core difference, aside from the fact that I'm not actually producing individual work, I'm really overseeing at this point is that, you know, I used to be part of the machine. Now I design the machine. And so my day is spent kind of thinking through very high level strategies and thinking about you know the financial picture and really routing opportunity. Like someone said this to me, they were like, you're kind of like a router. Basically people, I go out and I publicly talk about what we're doing and I have founders reach out to me saying, hey, I'd love to sell you my business. Well, I route that to people on my team. You know, I have somebody say, hey, I'm building my startup and I need a product built. You know, which agency should I work with? Okay, I'm going to route that to one of my agencies. Someone wants to work for one of our companies. I'm routing that. So I'm, I'm routing and then I'm really just designing the machine. But when I look at what I actually do day to day, I don't actually do any one thing that is directly related to the businesses. I'm really just looking for what's the next business that we're going to buy And then I'm talking to our CEOs about how they're building each individual business and giving them feedback. But I'm not really getting involved day to day at all. I'm really only talking to the CEOs when they want feedback from me or when I think there's an iceberg coming that they may not see and we need to talk about it. Gotcha. So virtual high five for myself here is the the note that I had here, just in terms of beyond the question was that I would have kind of labeled that your initial work has that kind of, you know, that artisan. So it feels good to feel to be somewhat accurate there. I wonder, and just kind of explanation, Henry, like 
which of those two kind of if those were two binary buckets right which of those two do you think is more andrew like which is a more natural fit and that might be a hindsight thing or if you feel like both of those are a fit do you think it's it's literally just a case of evolution right where the you know one was a timely fit in the past and the other is the kind of the, the most relevant fit today both of them are valuable and i i love both right so what i used to do is I would get really excited about a business. I would start the business. I'd be incredibly focused and passionate for anywhere from two weeks to three or four months. And then I would not be excited about the follow through, right? I wouldn't, I was not a good operator and I was an okay CEO, but I just didn't really enjoy it. And what I used to do is beat myself up read more management books, not embrace it, right? I would totally reject it. I'd be like, I have to become a good CEO. I'm gonna fight to become a good CEO. And then I've really, over the last five or six years, realized that's not actually what I'm the best at. And that at the end of the day, what I'm best doing is getting excited about the initial idea or when we buy a business, getting excited about all the ways it could be grown but not being the individual who actually goes in and grows it, I'm much better off delegating that to somebody. And when you kind of hearing you describe that, what I'm wondering is, was there like a single or significant kind of moment in where you first realized that, hey, this is going to be okay. Like I did not have to be a CEO, like my future and my kind of future responsibilities and task and role can look completely different to, to what it is today. Or was it kind of a sequence of events or just generally kind of how, like if you had to help someone else go through that discovery of what is a better fit for me, how would you kind of describe that? Well, I think it's no different than anyone running any business. I mean, I don't know if you've read the E-Myth, but in the E-Myth, he talks about the woman who is a baker. She loves baking for her family. And so she goes, oh, I should start a bakery. That'll be so much fun. And before she knows it, she's waking up at two in the morning to bake all the cookies. And then she's staying up all day to man the cash register. And she's sleep deprived and miserable and not making any money. And the point of that book is really that she needs to build a system. She needs to delegate to other people. She needs to build out a way to train them so that they can make the cookies that, you know, the way that she does it and that her life gets better once she kind of automates the business and builds systems and process and hires people. And for me, it was actually no different. Um, I went through the e-myth process of realizing that, you know, I was a designer and I needed to learn how to delegate design and then I needed to learn how to hire a project manager and then a salesperson. And I went through that successfully. And then the final role that I struggled to delegate was the CEO role. And for the first time when I hired a good CEO and put them in place, what I realized is that they actually were more incentivized to grow it than I was. That at a certain point, I was making enough money that my life was good and that and you know making another hundred grand a year didn't make a difference for me and that if it meant getting on a plane to San Francisco to sell a big deal I wasn't that motivated to do it meanwhile you plug in a great CEO and it's very meaningful to them and they're very excited to grow the business and they actually are good at the follow through and the execution and managing people so why wouldn't you delegate that part of the machine and at that point, you can really just sit on the board or be the owner and passively oversee it. And I, for my personality, that's a lot better. Now, I have a lot of friends who they are 
single track. They love having one business, being hyper-focused on it, getting into the details. They don't like letting go. I've always had the opposite personality of I get excited about a business and then I just go, I don't want to deal with this anymore. This is like a very stressful thing. I don't want to do the follow through and the people management and all that stuff. And so I'm of the personality where it makes a lot of sense to delegate that to somebody else. Yeah. What you're describing, by the way, is, is something that I, I've not done the kind of more diversified approach. I've also been, you know, somewhat of a kind of a single track horse here, but I, that totally kind of resonates. So the question I had there though, Andrew, was listening to you describe kind of your money, kind of significant money, $100,000, right? Significant amount of money. And you're saying that that's not necessarily kind of you know, a meaningful outcome for you. I, you. This is not something that you are kind of optimizing for in many of your decisions. What I wonder then is like, what are those kind of meaningful things that you do optimize for in your decision making at this stage? Well, so the way I think about money at this point is at first my goal was I want to wake up in the morning and be able to say no to anything, right? So maybe a client is a jerk. I want to tell them, that's fine. I'll give you a refund. It meant being on a vacation or a business trip and being able to have the financial freedom to say, I want to go home right now and pay for the cost of the changing of the flight or whatever. It it meant just having a lot of flexibility in my day-to-day life. And then I got that flexibility and I started thinking about So basically thinking of money as this way to build flexibility and then also a wall between you and things you don't want to do, people you don't want to work with, people you don't want to see, et cetera. So first I used that as a shield for myself. Then I started using it as a shield for my family, right? There's ways that you can make your life a little better. You know, I can give my wife a break by being able to afford a nanny. We can go and we can order food in a couple times a week so we don't have to cook, right? There's those kind of protections and giving yourself financial security and being prepared for the worst. But then at a certain point, it's really about the larger community, your extended family, being a global citizen, et cetera. And so I'm much more in that camp at this point where I'm thinking about, you know, how do I protect my employees and ensure that, you know, the business is prepared for, you know, any kind of downturn and negative situation. How do I bring more like wonderful businesses into our fold and protect them for the long term versus them being forced to sell to some crappy company that's going to chop them up and treat the employees poorly? And then, you know, how do I do good in my own community? So like I've been doing a ton of stuff around local news and I've also been donating quite a bit of money to uh, a variety of different scientific research projects and other stuff. So it's starting to get more broad. But at the end of the day, the theme is really kind of protecting myself, my family and people I care about. That really resonates, Andrew. And what you described there, by the way, is one way of describing my book that's coming out, by the way. I mean, I think you know this. That's why you're on the podcast, Life Profitability. And one of the concepts, kind of the bigger concepts in the book is exactly what you described there, which is this idea of building out concentric circles where, you know, anyone that wants to figure out what life profitability looks like for them, that starts with themselves, their values, the things that they want to do, because that person is going to be the common denominator on whatever journey kind of is happening next. And if you're out of alignment 
with that, then there's always going to be friction. But then from there, you kind of you ripple outwards to if you have a family, your immediate family, close friends, if you have a team that you kind of build around your team, society as a whole kind of close local society, etc. And then only kind of the last kind of new thing is actually thinking about the, the actual work and the actual business, which then becomes more of a kind of both a container for all these things, but really a manifestation from kind of you know, going through those initial kind of circles. So and for anyone listening, you know, Andrew and I did not plan this. I, I've not given Andrew any, any real spiel on the book there, but it was just really great hearing you say that. So what I'm wondering, um, you know, Andrew, just kind of, you know, taking that because, you know, to many people that might sound kind of, you know, very airy-fairy and then we kind of, you know, come back to on a daily basis kind of in in the real world, like how does that kind of relate to your everyday life, right? And I'm just thinking about, are there any kind of habits or rituals that allows you to continue doing those things and continue making your know, progress towards that kind of, those kind of goals? So, I mean, I just want to touch on what you said, because it's so important. I see so many people and they say, my goal is to build a billion dollar business or my goal is to sell my startup for whatever. And they don't think a lot about what do they actually want out of their day-to-day life? What does their perfect day look like? They're always deferring that. Oh, once I sell my business or once I become a billionaire or whatever the number is. And I find that totally crazy, right? To me, all I think about is how do I enjoy my day-to-day life and how do I make sure that the people I love also enjoy their lives and kind of build that security. It doesn't mean I won't say, okay, I want to build a billion dollar business or I want to do these things, but never at the cost of my own personal happiness or those around me. Or, you know, the number one thing I see over and over and over again as I read more business biographies is so many of these people that have built these huge businesses are terrible parents and their family is checked out, doesn't like them, or is fractured. And to me, that seems like the ultimate cost to pay when in reality, you know, that additional money didn't do anyone any good, even if they gave it away at the end of the day. Like, it just... It was going to go there anyway. In terms of rituals and stuff, the number one thing I do is not live in Silicon Valley or in, you know, an epicenter of dogmatism and and opinion. Like I have friends that live in Silicon Valley and I think what ends up happening is that they all kind of think the same. So being up in, I'm in Victoria, Canada, kind of in the middle of nowhere, it's very, very beautiful. Nobody here, I mean, there's lots of internet people own internet businesses, but it's a very small community and nobody is like hyper competitive and talking about how they just raised X million dollars or sold their startup. And so I'm really outside of the bubble and it allows me a lot of freedom of thought and to really focus on what I actually want in terms of rituals. You know, I meditate, I get exercise, I do all the kind of best practices, sleep, obviously. But I think the big thing is being out of the hubbub and really being able to think clearly about what I actually want versus what other people deem as success. You know what that really resonates, Andrew? I've always felt, I mean, so I'm born and bred Kryptonian and, you know, across both businesses that I've built and, and exited, our predominant kind of customer you know, market was North America. And, you know, at so many times in the last you know, 12, 13, 14 years, it made sense to even you know, consider a move. But firstly, I, it would have meant leaving home, right? 
but I've always at least kind of considered as well that kind of not staying, like not being in any kind of bubble, right? Whether it's Silicon Valley or elsewhere, but not being in those bubbles, like being a little bit removed out of all of that meant that kind of that herd-like mentality just doesn't happen. And not because you get drugged when you move to Silicon Valley, right? But I think to your point there is when one, like for me at least, every single time when I considered, hey, does it make sense for us to move to the States, when you kind of make the decision not to do that, you're also kind of choosing something else proactively, right? Which is, I choose myself, I choose my family, I choose the lifestyle we have there. And that's a source of so much positive energy in one's life. Well, I've always found it bizarre. I talk to some people and they'll say something like, um, you know, I could make $200,000 a year living in Canada, but if I move down to Silicon Valley, I can make 300000 And what they're forgetting is that their rent is going to be three times the cost. They're going to spend an hour commuting both ways. And their day-to-day quality of life is just going to be so much worse. And for me, I would rather be a big fish in a small pond than a small fish in a big pond or trying to fight to be a big fish in a big pond. I just don't think it's worth it. And as I meet more and more very successful people, there's very few people I can point to that actually are happy day to day and whose lives I would swap places with. Yeah, totally. That that makes a lot of sense and really resonates. So I want to kind of you know start wrapping up here, Andrew. Like you, you mentioned family, you mentioned your kids. I wonder, and again, like this is, I think the privilege or opportunity that I have in terms of hosting, like, you know, podcasts, I get to, you know, ask everyone the questions that, um, you know, maybe only matters to me, right? But I wonder kind of how much has fatherhood changed or influenced the way you think about your life, about the world today? Well, I'd say that in my 20s, I kind of exhausted all of the different things that were new and novel. And I experienced what it was like to make a bunch of money and buy a bunch of silly stuff, realized that didn't make me any happier. I traveled a whole bunch. I had all these experiences. And by 30, I was kind of going like, okay, well, what's next? And I started having these existential crises around like, okay, what's the point of making more money and starting more businesses and doing all this stuff? And I realized that like at the end of the day, we have a biological drive, at least most people do, to have children. And as soon as I completed that biological drive and had a kid, it was like my brain had been shot up with some wonderful drug. And it was so obvious to me that this is, you know, this is the reason why I was put on the earth and I had this profound fulfillment. And it's been really interesting. That hasn't abated. And I'm three years in every single day. I can look at my kid and feel pure joy, which is amazing. And one of the interesting things about kids, as you know, is they keep you so busy that you really don't have time to think about yourself. And that's a bad thing in a lot of ways because sometimes you neglect yourself. But one of the great things about it is you don't question your meaning. You know what the meaning of your life is, is to protect your kids, keep them safe, and turn them into the people that they're meant to be. And that has been profoundly meaningful to me. And if I think about it, when I was 30, I didn't know what I was looking forward to. And now at 34 with two kids, I know exactly what I'm looking forward to, which is spending summers away with my kids, teaching them how to ride a bike, watching them grow up, exposing them to interesting things and people and places. So it's been profoundly gratifying and awesome. And, you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, uh, it's the best. 
Yeah, that's, that's also my, uh, my current best or most productive side hustle is I made the decision when we had kids that I'm totally going to brainwash my kids to love punk rock music, which is my favorite. <laughs> and I know, like, especially AD Jr., he's, um, he's a, of that kind of age that he gets it. And like, you'll be, I think for me, like being able to share those experiences, you know, have conversations around interesting things that is immensely you know, rewarding. So that really, really resonates. The last question I have for you, Andrew, and then I'll allow the conversation to, to fade out to kind of exit music here is what can we expect from, from Andrew Wilkinson next? Like, what are those things that you are planning, you know, for thinking about, like, just what can the world expect from you? Well, you know, if you'd asked me that five years ago, I probably would have been wrong. And I, I would say it's very hard to predict the future. But what I will say is I'm loving what I'm doing right now, which is buying wonderful internet businesses from founders who have usually bootstrapped them and continuing to protect the culture and hold them long term. And we've you know now built out a group of over 30 companies. And I'm finding that really, really fun. I'm liking being able to talk to really smart CEOs every day, think about interesting business problems. I work with really interesting people in our head office and I'm loving it. So I would hope that over the next five years, I figure out how to make more of an impact philanthropically. That's something I've been thinking a lot about. But other than that, I think it's just more of what we're already doing and continuing to buy great businesses. Awesome. Andrew, if, if anyone here on the podcast wanted to follow along with that journey as you grow, continue to do awesome things, where is the best place they should be following you? I would say probably on Twitter. So my Twitter is A. Wilkinson. And then our website is tinycapital.com. Awesome stuff. I'll get that linked up in the show notes. Andrew, was, uh, it was great catching up firstly. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, that was awesome. I really enjoyed it, Addy. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Cheers, dude. That's it for me for today's episode. If anything in today's conversation really resonated with you, please do send me an email on ad at lifeprofitability.com. That's ad at lifeprofitability.com. You can also leave a review on iTunes, which helps me to improve the show and perhaps also helps me to reach someone else that needs to hear this or might find this helpful. I'll be back here with another great guest next week. Cheers. <laughs>